Welcome to Arvid and Tyler Catch Up. I'm Arvid. I'm Tyler. Let's catch up. Yeah, let's catch up. It's been a while, right? It's been two weeks now that yeah. we haven't chatted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think there are a lot of things that we can talk about today. I think a lot happened in, in both of our lives over the last week. Do you yeah. want to get started? Do you want to like open with a with the big bang? <laughs> if there's one. <laughs> <laughs> um sure, yeah, yeah. Uh so yeah, as of this moment, we haven't yet publicly announced this, but we went through a bunch of big strategic changes at the Com Fund um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, so there was some good news, which is you know we closed our fourth fund. Um, so you know the the business of being in fund management is always funny. You you close a new fund, and it's sort of like hooray, we get to stay in business. You know, <laughs> um, so that was great. Uh, we got that done on a pretty tight timeline. Uh, I've talked a little bit publicly. I don't think we've talked that much on the podcast about like kind of the challenges we went through working on that last fourth fund over the last year. Um, you know, it's been quite the roller coaster in that respects. And then, but you know, when the fourth fund came in, our business is a little weird in the sense that um, you know, for folks who aren't familiar with the fund management business. You know, you have this management company, which is the people that do all the sourcing of the investments, the actual investing, the helping the portfolio, all that sort of stuff. And that's kind of its own little small business. And then you have these funds that you raise, and that's a pool of capital that you, most of it goes to investing in startups. Um, But the, you know, a slice of it goes to the management company to kind of run your operations. And so in the short term, your ability to fund your management company is a function of your ability to fundraise. In the long term, the success is a function of how well the funds do. But in the short term, it's it's not a function of how well the funds do. It's how well can you sell the idea of you know more investors coming in. So we looked at you know the budget where we were with the fourth fund and basically had to make some tough decisions around scaling back the management company to get the management company to be default alive to be break even um so that was that was tough um it was you know the first time i've ever had to do like a significant round of of layoffs so we laid off a chunk of the team uh and then we also had to pare back a bunch of our kind of non-core activities right sort of said what's the main job we do which is invest in calm companies and support the portfolio founders and we had to really get super focused on that, which is to 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 say we're really not going to do anything else but this one job super well, and we're going to pare back everything else. So that was uh, an exciting uh, and and interesting uh, two weeks. Basically, it was coming to that decision and then executing that decision for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it sounds like you like overextended a little bit in in some regards. Would you consider that to be the case? Uh, on purpose, yeah. Right. So, so the way that um, that we had set up the management company was, you know, we knew we were raising relatively small funds in the scheme of things. We're still able to invest in, you know, maybe two dozen or so companies a year. So it's it's still a big impact. But in the scheme of you know venture capital and all this sort of this world of investing in startups, it's kind of small potatoes. So we started small and we knew there was a big opportunity to invest in lots and lots and lots of calm companies. So one of the things we did was we actually, 
we raised a separate slice of capital directly into the management company. So again, if you think about the management company is this, this small business that's business is operating these funds, and then the funds are these separate pools of capital that go and invest into startups. We raised some money, about $1.5 million two years ago, that went straight into the management company. Just like a startup, you basically think of it as like a seed round, right? And then we did normal startup stuff, which is you you basically run your business unprofitably for a little while. That's the whole point of raising the money is to scale up the team and and make a bunch of investments in terms of like not investments into startups, but investments into infrastructure and products and processes and team to be able to support a bigger you know, enterprise, right? Um, and then the the goal was to raise much bigger funds, you know, to be able to get back to break even, right? So that's the kind of trajectory that we were trying to get to. And you can kind of think of it as like, you raise a seed round, you know, then you run your company unprofitably, you are on a trajectory to you need to triple your MRR to get back to break even. And you look at the numbers and you say, well, you know, we're not going to get there, right? We're not going to get to triple our MRR before our cash runs out. So we need to either raise revenue faster, or we need to cut costs. And that's kind of the the position that we were in where we we tried our very best to raise the revenue faster in the form of fundraising. So we're not going to get there. Um, so we had to we had to cut costs to get to break even, just like kind of any other. Well, frankly, like a lot of startups are facing right now, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was yeah. wondering. I was wondering how much of this was just like purely like large scale economics that everybody's suffering through, and and how much of that is just like a kind of a ripple effect of other people already struggling. You know, because I I would assume that there's it's just particularly with investment, it arrives a bit late because it's not immediately at the level of, oh, our customers aren't paying us money anymore, but it, you know, it comes at a, a later stage where you figure out, oh, certain things are not as received anymore as they used to be. Was, is that what you're experiencing here? Um, I mean, a little bit. The The thing is just that the, the market for fundraising, for raising capital from especially institutional LPs is not a particularly rational market, right? So in some respects, like, you're right, so some of the dynamics that I kind of laid out in some other um, documents that I've written for folks that are public, um, you know, is the fact that a lot of the folks we were talking to to raise the larger fund, they are suffering from some of this like macro stuff, right? So they invested in a lot of other venture capital funds and private equity funds. A lot of those are not doing very well or um, even worse, they're kind of like, not yet not doing well, but everyone expects them to start doing really badly in the near future. And so they're just very hesitant to make new investments. And so even though like our funds are doing really well, like the kind of calm fund ethos is actually really well positioned in this market right now, right? So like our portfolio is doing great, um, much better than you know a portfolio of companies that's dependent on raising a series A right now. Uh, but you know, the folks that we were talking to to raise that much larger fund are just kind of unable to to write those checks right now. So there's an element of that that's just like kind of macro stuff, but there's also some stuff that's very particular quirks of, um, you know, of the fundraising business because it's very, yeah, it's not super rational. It's kind of very 
uh, expectations driven, I guess. Um, cause you have a lot of companies right now that are like, you know, like if you look at our own portfolio, right, they're still able to grow. They're still growing from their customers despite, you know, headwinds in the economy. And that's because when you have like much more rational, like, yeah, we have this great software, you need it. Like you should work with us. It's a lot easier to get it done versus the commitment to make new investments is just a little bit of a weirder transaction, you know? Yeah, so. I, I, I would I would think that like just the abstraction level of money, right, compared yeah. to an actual service being exchanged, but like dealing with investments that generate money from other people generating money, the further yeah. like up this abstraction layer you get, the more it becomes cloudy and kind of you have these these so, social psychology things of the market and whatever that might mean, right? You know, totally. these complexities play into it. Well, one thing that I kind of like about this, even though it sucks to kind of have to downsize, is you're treating this even more like a bootstrap calm business at this point. Yeah. Kind of what yeah. I love about this, you know, kind of forced bootstrapping ship, I guess, or bootstrapperness. But it is, uh, you really need this to be like a... a revenue centric business at this point this is kind of nice to see because that's that's what i like to see as more businesses of, of course when funding is involved yeah. it becomes a bit muddy but it's kind of nice to see that that is also an option that you can choose as a fund because that that blows my mind in in a way right that a fund can now still like, take investment large investments and distribute them but still operate like one of the people that they distributed to which is just yeah. so much more aligned I, I quite like that no you're totally right i mean it was funny as i was like you know, as I was working through, obviously laying off, you know, a chunk of the team is a big decision. So I was getting a lot of advice from folks and getting a lot of feedback. And, you know, over and over again, I basically got my own kind of calm company advice being parroted back at me, you know, which is just <laughs> stuff like make sure that you stay in the game, right? You yeah. know, the most important thing is to, you know, not burn out and not have the company crash into a wall. And you'll figure it out along the way, right? You can be long-term ambitious, not short-term ambitious. And long-term ambitious means stay in the game, you know, be on a sort of sustainable path and then be more opportunistic. Whereas we had sort of gotten ourselves into a position that we often try to guide founders to avoid, which is we have to raise a bunch more money in order to keep the company in business. And, you know, it's like very... I was having almost mirror images of conversations that I had been having with, you know, other founders recently where um, they raised maybe a little more money when times were good. They had mm -hmm. staffed up a little too hot aggressively and they were putting themselves on, you know, I call it like having the treadmill up to 11. It's like you have to run really fast just to stay in place. And one of the ways out of that is to just turn the treadmill down, treadmill being like your your cost, your burn rate, right? And so you know, it sucks to have to lay people off, but sometimes if you want the the business, the company to to make it for the long haul, you have to make these kinds of, you know, tough calls. And then you put yourself in a position to ride things out a little more smoothly and also pounce on opportunities when the timing is perfect versus trying to force the timing to be right. You know, so now from our perspective, when we're talking to some of these large, um, these large investors, like the timing was terrible for them. They had maximum uncertainty, you know, in the last mm -hmm. quarter. And so it was a terrible time to be really putting the hard sell on them to say like now or never, you know? So now we put ourselves in a position to say, look, we're around, you know, like if it's six months from now, 18 months from now, six years from now, like we'll be here. So let's have that conversation when the, the timing is right, you know? So. Yeah. It sure sounds like it's way more sustainable and calmer in, in, in many ways.
I, I do wonder. It's going to get there, yeah. It's you know, <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it has the potential, a right? Long couple of weeks for sure. <laughs> yeah, I will say I, I fully empathize a lot with folks who have to go through layoffs. It is the absolute worst thing. I mean, yeah. just like brutal, especially when it's not for any good reason other than you know, basically yourself. I mean, I have to take responsibility for the decisions for that, and it really sucks to tell people like you're doing a great job, but we can't keep you around, you know, so not fun. Yeah. I, I do wonder though, like just comparing the two like state of states of mind that you were in the one mm. before where you still had people employed, but you knew it, it was super shaky. And yeah. the one now where it probably was super rough to let them go, but at least you know that you're on a different trajectory. Like how, how, how was that? Like how, how do you, do you feel better now? In, in terms of safer or, or less stress? Like, what's your anxiety level rating between these two states? Yeah, way, way, way down. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, something I often am, am coaching founders through in the moment is this idea that it's actually not that stressful to, to really only have one option, right? In the sense that, you know, like when I talk to advisors, like there was no decision, right? I mean, a hundred percent of people that I had this conversation with said, look, I'm thinking about doing this. Everybody said, that's exactly what you need to do. There's no, nobody made any credible arguments for any other path yeah. forward. And so that's not that stressful, right? What's yeah. stressful can be when, you know, you, you have a bunch of options and it's really difficult to figure out which one to take and all that sort of stuff. But once the path really narrows down to one, I don't find it to be that stressful. It's definitely not, you know, fun in the moment, but you, you get over it pretty quickly. And yeah, I mean, next week, you know, going forward, once the dust settles, I think I am optimistic about, you know, having things be operating on a calmer basis. I think, you know, it's a lot of the stuff that we're tweeting about over here is true, right? It is very difficult to make the best long-term decisions for a company when you have a short-term challenge on the horizon, right? When you're staring down at, okay, we have 10 months of runway right now. We have to make some big moves in four or five months before otherwise we're going to have to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it's just difficult to make the best decisions. And when you reset to an infinite runway to say, okay, well, we're in business for now. It's just, it is so much easier to make the best decisions that you possibly can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also just, it's better, I think overall for your mental health and stuff like that. But, um, I think, you know, I don't regret a lot of this stuff. I think we made a good, a good bet. Uh, at the time, you know, I mean, I think I also would have been a lot calmer um, had we raised a hundred million dollar fund for, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, and I think we made like a really good sort of swing at that. Um, so I don't think it was a bad decision to kind of make that play. Um, but you know, sometimes you can you can make a, a bet that is likelier than not to pan out, but still you kind of hit the you know the unlucky side of that equation. So yeah, yeah, it's still a bet. Right? Like all of right. all the things we do are still essentially games of chance, which is rather yep. high, yet not 100% uh, yeah. chance of success. I kind of like that perspective, right? You Go play ahead. much poker, Arvid? You ever play poker? No, I don't. Oh. But I, I do know how to play, like really badly. I play poker yeah. super badly. So there you go. I think you might like it, actually. It's... Um, 
So I, I play it, I would say semi seriously. Like I, in the past have studied poker and like bought okay. books and stuff like that and, and played for stakes that were, you know, meaningful to me, um, mm. in, in, in big chunks. And one of the things you get really used to and poker is a really great simulation of this idea of like expected value bets, mm-hmm. right? So you make a good bet, which is like, you know, it's, it's, it's constrained enough that you can actually know the odds and you can say, yeah, like I made this bet where I was getting paid the potential to get paid four to one with, you know, five to one odds to hit, right? Or something like that. And so that's a good bet for me to make. You should make that over and over again all day long. But still, a good chunk of the time, that bet, that good bet is going to hit the 20%, 40%, whatever it is, where you lose, right? And you have to kind of get really comfortable with this idea of like, that was a good bet. And then I kind of like literally let the chips fall where they may. Um, and I think that's been like really good sort of training for me on a lot of these things is just understanding like, yeah, you can't be, you know, outcome oriented, right? Just because it didn't go the way that you expected it to doesn't mean that it was a bad bet, right? Yeah. That's a great analogy. I love this because yeah. like you, you, poker to me as I understand it, having watched a couple of um, intense games on Twitch because that apparently is a place where you can watch people ah, play like real life poker, like online and stuff. It's really yeah. nice. Yeah, it's 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 real tournaments just being broadcast there. It's like it's a cool. game technically, so it qualifies for Twitch. Yeah. And um, what I see is, is people making these good bets, hopefully good bets, sometimes not so good, but still bets. And they the, the only thing that really matters is that they don't overextend with the bet. That's all it is, right? Like it is a bet. You may win, you may not, but after the bet, you still have to have a couple chips left to be able to totally. keep playing, right? And I like this as a as an analogy for entrepreneurship because that's like every single thing we try, every little experiment should be one that if it works, great, and if not, great, we learn something and we can still do more things in the future. It's <laughs> kind of yep. how how I want that. That to me is also calmness, knowing that the outcome of your current bet is not like do or die for the whole thing that you're doing. Right? It's, it's not it's not going to break everything if it doesn't work out, which is a lot of what I see when people start freelancing and they have like one big client and mm. everything with that one client needs to work out. Otherwise, they don't have an income anymore for the month. Like they overextend into these these whale customers. You see that with software businesses, too. I see several SaaS businesses that I am in contact with also like businesses that I consulted with in the past back in my pre-entrepreneurship days where I just was a software consultant and I mm-hmm. saw these these businesses with like 20, 25, 30 employees having two gigantic customers and that was their whole customer base. I was like, Ugh, you're effectively their agency now and if they don't like what you're doing, you have like, you lose half of your income, like one of yeah. each, right? Like one customer would break your business, one customer leaving. So that is to me the the opposite of what a calm business does, right? Like overcommitting to a single experiment, a single customer, a single client relationship, whatever it might be. Good to see that, and I retract my question, I guess, or my my initial um, feeling that you may have overextended. I don't think you overextended at all. You just did things mm. and you tried them and it didn't work the way that you would have liked it to work, but you're still doing the thing you want to do, which is support bootstrap businesses on that journey. So I don't think it was an extension in the first place. The only thing that I um, am kind of sad to see going, or at least for the time being, is the kind of the community efforts, right? Mm. That that stuff, like particularly with uh, the founder summit, as as I assume it's it's going to be in hiatus for a bit. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. We canceled the slate of summits for uh, for this year, unfortunately, which is a major bummer. Um, yeah, but yeah, oh. it's part <laughs> it's of what it is. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I I don't think it'll be forever. You know, we'll probably bring them back at some point, but yeah, um, yeah they're just a they're a lot of work, and with a much smaller team, we just didn't have the resources to pull it off in at the level that I want, and it's not. You know, we're not an events company, right? We're yeah, an exactly. And company. and you yeah. don't claim to be, right? You don't claim to be one either. And you probably don't even want to be one. Like, I don't know. Like maybe there's a future for you being event uh, evangelist for for these kind of things. But I'd love to decentralize that a little bit, to be honest. Yeah. Like I would love to support um, a bunch of folks that are sort of calm aligned building events. So actually I'll put a, sh a, a, a sort of thread out there with, uh, if anybody else is running an event somewhere that they think, you know, founders of calm companies would love to join. I'd love to aggregate a bunch of those and provide those as, as opportunities for, for folks to go, because I think the, you know, the, the value of, of getting together is, is tremendous. And I mean, you were just at microconf last week, so I want to hear about that as well. Like mm -hmm. we need a whole ecosystem of those kinds of opportunities and would love to, to support a bunch of them. But yeah, for now, we're not going to be able to throw our own. So, well, yeah. We'll we'll see what the future holds. I, I can talk about microconf because I have a lot to say about yeah. that event. Well, one of the things that I came out with. Let's just uh, completely do the reverse history situation here. When I flew back home from Denver, I was like, I want to go to more of this. Right? Mm. Which is it's kind of why I'm so sad that the Founder Summit is not happening because that would be more of this. Sure. And any opportunity to meet founders who are so value aligned with what I like and what I did and what I want other people to do. Any founder, any group of founders, be it five people or 250 people like at MicroConf, is a great opportunity to just like encourage each other and spread the word and motivate each other. Right? That's that's kind of what I want to do more of. So I'm going to see if I can uh, jumpstart uh, some kind of meetup situation here in my area or virtually or whatever, because I just want to hang out with more people. It's really what I yeah. mean. I mean, it's, it's the whole reason why I, we, we started this podcast and I started like having people on my own show is because like, hanging out in my basement all by myself, plus my dog, which is great, but not not enough. That was not enough, right? I wanted yeah. to, to be, be with people. And Microsoft gave me that opportunity. So I'm just going to give you a, a quick walkthrough because there's a lot that, that I yeah. experienced in this week. First off, Denver, it was really awesome. It's a, it's a great place to be. Just even mm. flying into Denver from Toronto was uh, quite the exciting thing. For me as a European, just to, to, the scope of North America is always a sight to behold. Like I'm, I'm used to, you fly to a city, it takes you like half an hour, and you, all you see is like villages and mountains and that kind of stuff. Nothing of which happened on my flight to Denver. It was just, just fields and agrarian areas and everything. It was super flat. It was really cool. Flying in the last like five minutes, all of a sudden the Rockies appeared in front of us it was yeah. wonderful it was just mesmerizing denver itself great place um a very interesting city with interesting things to do i'll get to that and um, the conference itself was awesome it was the second time i went to microconf the first time being mm -hmm. in 2019 in okay. dubrovnik in europe i went to microconf eu which was great because we had just sold feedback panda to SureSwift capital right mm -hmm. it was like four or yeah, three and a half months after that so we were still kind of in the transitionary period but we were mostly done because we had built a very easily transitionable business and then um, I think Kevin, Kevin McCardle from uh, Shortswift, he asked us to 
well, maybe give a talk, give a little attendee talk, just talk to people, share the story of you selling the business and how you did it, what you what you built the business to be sure. to be so, so easily acquired. Because he apparently, which is uh, something I'm very happy about, had a good time acquiring our business, and that's always nice, right? Yeah. When your acquirer tells you to talk about it, that is it tends to be a positive sign. So we gave that yeah. talk. And um, that kind of put me on the map for my whole Twitter journey, for my whole writing journey. That was the first sign of credibility in the community that I could just amplify into building my own kind of personal brand. So I, right. I have a, a lot to say about MicroConf in the, the best of words, because if effectively Rob Walling kickstarted my career in many ways, right? Mm. Like with, with the conference, him being a writer, like both him and you writing amazing stuff. And me taking, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And then starting sure. to write. That's kind of, that's where this is coming from. So yeah. um, I was equally, if not even happier when I was offered to speak at this microconf as well. Mm -hmm. And um, while the keynote slots were gone, there was still some kind of, um, let's do something more interactive with the community, which is something I enjoy because I like to be in the weeds of things. Sure. So uh, on the second day of the conference, I went on stage. I kind of talked to people about the fact that every prior talk of the conference involved some kind of mention of burnout or mental health issues. It was really noticeable. Like even, even Patrick Campbell talking about the acquisition of ProfitWell to paddle, in his slides and in his stories, he had like two or three different mental health issues that he just mentioned mm -hmm. from going through the process of building the business and the acquisition and all that. And the yeah. people on the, the day before Def Basu was there, he was he's talking about being too stressed and doing things that, that impact um, a small business competing with bigger businesses and all that. Everybody had a mental health topic and it was so noticeable because that's not what I usually get at conferences, right? People share tactical stuff, technical stuff, strategic things and use this tool and whatnot. But every single talk mentioning like burnout at, or at some point, that cannot be coincidental. So I was mm -hmm. super happy that my topic was talking about the squishy side, the emotional and the challenges beside the technical and, and operational. So I went on stage, I gave people what I just told you. Like I told them that I've been to MicroConf before and I gave this attendee talk and I kind of told them what I had talked about at during the attendee talk, all of which was like, oh, we did this amazing thing and we did that amazing thing. We built the documentation here and that and it worked great. So all the highlight things, nothing yeah. negative. And I said, what I didn't tell people at the time was that I was still mid-burnout while I gave that talk. Right. Yeah. So I kind of introduced a topic that we we show the good stuff, but we feel everything. Right. Yeah. And then from there, I, I just took it to a couple darker places in my personal experience, being overwhelmed with work and being socially isolated through being a founder because nobody understands what you're doing. Right. People want you to take a job or they want you to, you know, get back to freelancing because at least the money is better. Like all that kind of stuff where people just don't get you. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I will probably never forget from from this talk was the interactive part. I, I told people. You're sitting in a room with 250 other founders who understand exactly what you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. They understand exactly what you're feeling. They all have the same challenges. We all have felt that. Why am I doing this? This is not working. We all have felt this. This is too much. I need to scale back a little bit to pull you in at this point. We all know the feeling of, I don't want to hire and fire people. This is too much for me. I just want to, you know, code away. That's what I want. Yeah, yeah, Everybody yeah. understands this. And I told people... Around you are people that will get what you say. They will support you in whatever you say or do. And they may have a solution or they may just have the ears that you need right now to be heard, to be perceived as one of us. So 
I it, we the the conference venue was just round tables of like six or eight people each, everybody facing the stage, but they were round tables. So I I said, well, you're sitting at those round tables with like six to eight people. Why don't you talk to each other? So I gave people a 15 minute time frame twice during, throughout this hour to just exchange stories, and I I gave this initial example of my own life how i felt extremely like overwhelmed by work and sat on like at three in the morning sat in, on, on my desk or sat in front of my computer just crying because i couldn't handle it I kind of anchored people's expectations of what they can share sure and effectively i gave them permission to talk about whatever kind of ailed them right which something yeah. that most people that were there never really got the chance to do with anybody else because nobody invited it nobody expected it nobody allowed them to do it yeah. And the, the craziest thing, the thing that I will never forget was me telling people, you have, to, you have the floor, 15 minutes, chat about whatever you want. And I walked off stage and before I even reached the end of the stage, the room was full of conversation. Like mm. out of these 250 people, 250 of them had a story ready. They had a mental health issue that they, they've been carrying with them for years right mm. there to tell. And that was something that just made it so clear, so obvious that this this whole field of being overwhelmed, like dealing with imposter syndrome, burnout, and all that is something so extremely common, yet never conversed about, never exchanged between people. So we did that twice, once with being overwhelmed, once with being socially isolated, and then... Mm -hmm. You know, and ended the conversation, had a little Q&A, which was nice. And then afterwards, I I was kind of I got an avalanche of people coming to me and saying, this was the first time I ever got to talk about this. Or wow. I was sitting at a table where I could like see people, people's faces detensify, if that's a word, like get way less tense after talking about something that they had never shared publicly with anybody else. Yeah, it was it was an incredible experience. I'm very grateful again for uh, being at at the stage or being allowed to help people help themselves in this way. But it yeah. was it was a wonderful thing to do. I and I'm, I'm glad that I got to do it. What did you take away from that? Any anything that you I don't know. Clearly, that resonated. Did you feel like you wanted to sort of run with that that topic, that idea, any further? I keep getting back to this topic. I think that's kind of how I started blogging. Like out of the the first eight or so blog posts that I wrote, four were mental health related because it was just so hmm. present in my life still at that point. Because yeah. I started right after we sold, so I was still mid burnout. I had I had all these feelings and things that I needed to deal with, and writing is a is a great way to kind of take it out of your mind and put it onto paper or hard disks, whatever it may be. So hmm. I I felt very validated in never letting go of the topic even though I have other things to talk about as well. Now with Calm Businesses, SaaS, and, you know, building building an audience and building in public, a lot of that is not necessarily mental health specific, but I want to make this even more of a thing, like to talk about this even more, to encourage people to share and to uh, actively motivate people that are in the process of opening up to keep doing it and inviting people into it. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really have any like specific things other than I want to do this again and more off, you know, that's kind of how I feel. But yeah. I, I guess I, I got the the speaker bug that 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 might be what it is. Mm -hmm. Like I really want to go back on stage and share things that, that I can share with people because the fact that I could tell them to do something and then it actually resonated so much that they willingly did it again. And like 20 minutes later, yeah. <laughs> you know, like without even being asked, like they're like, hey, I want to talk about this now. Um, that that's just show that there was that was kind of like speaker market fit. Is that what it is? Like it, there was a very obvious connection that people they were really just waiting for permission to to do this, right? They were waiting yeah. for somebody to to give them the the heads up. It's fine to talk about this, 
I had to give him the anchor, give him that I suffer through this. You probably too. Now you can talk about it because you heard my story situation. It was, uh, yeah. I wonder if we could recreate that on Zoom, just like like intermittently, like just yeah. to uh, do something and just invite a bunch of people onto Zoom and break them out into into tables like that yeah. and do it through the internet. Founders Anonymous. We're gonna do that. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I would not be surprised if that could work. I mean, if people can go to psychotherapy on Zoom, then they can probably be in a, in a founder self-help group on Zoom. And it's nothing, that's the thing that I noticed, that the thing that's still kind of a taboo around these topics, like therapy, it's always been a problem that people don't do enough therapy, even though people know that therapy works. Self-help always feels kind of dirty, feels kind of, you know, like you've lost control as if, your mind is not a, a thing upon itself that does weird, weird stuff, right? That you barely have control yeah. over. So there's a lot of taboo, a lot of um, not wanting to be vulnerable in front of other people, particularly not your competitors or your peers. There's like a social stratification around that. Uh, I would like to do this. I would like to do more of this, I, not exclusively. Not much. I, I think I know what you're saying. I think I disagree a little bit that there's that much pushback. I think you, you saw firsthand that actually... <laughs> Honestly, like all people need is just like a little bit of a permission structure yeah. to be open and honest and like just a little nudge like, hey, why don't you guys over there talk to each other about it? And they're like, yeah, great. You know, <laughs> yeah, Nobody's right. like, oh, whoa, whoa, what am I worried about? Like, you know, the taboo and blah, blah, blah. It's like, nope, I'm ready to go as soon as somebody says it. So I think there's definitely some opportunity to just keep that nudge going for sure. I would like to. And yeah. I I, I'm not a mental health professional or psychologist of any kind, but I, I, I'm a burnout, I don't know, survivor, the right phrase. You know, I, I've been through it. So mm. I, I know like how much it impacts you. I, I had uh, Dr. Sherry Walling on my, every Walling was involved in my last week, like all yeah. of them. I had her on my podcast and we talked about burnout as well and imposter syndrome and isolation, uh -huh. the, the topics that I uh, talked about there as well it's 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 something that is really ubiquitous in our community like we yep. all feel kind of un misunderstood overwhelmed by having to wear all the hats at the same time you know best what it feels like right like you've been right. both on the, the business side and now and from looking at the fund like you you're juggling with all of these things the fund yeah. uh, fund operator and uh, star grade podcaster all of this needs to be in one person right it, it is a lot of work even though we're doing this here just as a conversation it still is also one more thing to do right so it's everybody can kind of relate to that so yeah i, I want to keep like getting more experts honestly into my circle because i think sherry she's already established like she like wrote the the entrepreneur's guide to keeping your shit together which is a great book that that i read when when i was selling the business and it really helped me just kind of calm down relax set a couple of boundaries and priorities in my life and she's already in that community, but she's one of the, like, what, three or four people that are talking about mental health issues in a community of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. That is not enough. So I kind of want to pull in more experts into the space now that I have some reach, can probably grab them and pull them in, which is going to be great. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do more of that, um, cool. just ex exposing the topic more. And other than that, conference was great. Like conference itself was great. Like we did cool things. We went to, there was like a pop crawl in the, like the middle of the day, which was interesting. A weed tour that was in there too. Like it was just a lot going on in Denver. The Mile High City. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah, yeah. So it was, 
<laughs> it was great. Like uh, catering was good, but you can tell that this is a, a conference that has been around for a long while. Like people are getting really good at making the conference happen. Like particularly mm-hmm. with Alexander, the producer of the the whole thing, he's been doing this for many a year now. He was there yeah. in Europe when 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 I was there, so he's been doing mm-hmm. every single one since. I mean, there hasn't been much like with the pandemic, but still, like the production value is spectacular. And I would like to see more of this because, I, as I said, like when I was sitting in the airplane on the 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 fl- flight home i was like yeah i want to do more of this not necessarily the speaking that's great and if i have the opportunity to speak at any conference i will take it hint hint at everybody listening but it just being part of this community of people who willingly go into a place with other people like them to exchange to learn from each other to learn about new things and, and just connect i want to do more of this you know and yeah that that was my week and it's been a great week I'll tell you that love that yeah, yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I had a great time. Is that is, yeah? Is any anything else that happened in your week, which has probably been like even more busy than this? Just uh, the one thing. I have a, a a more general topic. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, which mm. is um kind of related to what I was working on with thinking about the future of the fund, but uh, I think maybe more applicable to other founders, which is the question around founders who also have kind of an individual contributor skill set and how should they be thinking about the evolution of that over time, right? The kind of like classical version of this would be the technical founder, right? Who, you know, is writing a bunch of code and part of the reason they get to be the founder is that they, you know, wrote the first version of the app and uh, they were the first person to get the thing off the ground. And then the kind of basic advice over time is like, well, you know, you should... um, you know, you should you should hire developers as soon as you should, right? You know, you should you should focus on wearing more of your CEO hat. You should hire. You should delegate. You should start doing less and less and less of the individual contributor role to the extent that you know people will give advice like, you know, your job as a CEO is basically to just hire people who are smarter than you and get out of their way, right? Um, and I wonder what you think about that because, you know, I have been going through my own version of that with the individual contributor role being the um, actual investing, right? So reviewing companies, talking to them, deciding which ones to invest in, and then kind of negotiating those investments. And then also also being like the CEO of this kind of small company. Um, I could imagine you, you know, right now you're all individual contributor, but let's assume that, you know, Bootstrap Founder Inc., right, starts to grow. You're speaking, you have multiple podcasts, you have all this sort of stuff. You know, eventually you have a team. I wonder if you have any initial thoughts around maybe questioning some of the default assumptions around um, technical founders or individual contributor founders should very quickly start to become just a pure CEO. Because I also think it's a source of a lot of of unhappiness among founders who genuinely get joy out of the individual contributor side of things. And they kind of feel like they should start to delegate all that stuff away and they feel guilty for spending their time on that. Um, I don't know. You have any initial thoughts on that topic? I've seen a couple of people who really never wanted to be anything but a software engineer. 
Like even yeah. though the, their their business turned out to grow and they had to hire first they start with customer support and then they hire some other developer and then it turns out that they actually are a C level and they need to act like one and you put in all these abstractions like you put a management layer in the middle and all of a sudden you have team leads and you you, you still want to be part of it. I think what the best thing I've seen is when people never jump into the CTO role but find somebody to take over the CTO role for them. And instead stay uh, as like head of engineering or VP of engineering. That's, that's like a VP of engineering still does engineering. A CTO just makes technical choices. That's kind of where I think this, this stratification happens. So yeah. if you if you don't ever want to be a CTO, then you shouldn't be a CTO to begin with. You should just like, you know, be the be the VP of engineering and leave that space for somebody else to, to come in. Because there are really capable CTOs that are not technical hands-on people, that are not like in the weeds kind of coding all night, or even doing things like um, yeah, architecture for certain kind of systems. Like you can yeah. be a technical decision maker without being involved in the architecture itself. You can make choices, but you don't have to do that kind of the grunt work. But that that's kind of something that happens later down the road. I think the hard part is to be both at the same time and be ready to give up the thing that is actually higher than the thing you want to do. And that is something that I see people struggling with all the time. Like they feel forced to kind of be, they're pulled along by their founder peers. If they have, if you have multiple founders in a business, if you're not a solopreneur, and solopreneurs is even harder because you will never be able to not be everybody at the same time. But if you're sure. like three founders, you have a guy. Uh, or girl who does like the CEO things and you have people doing the, the operational things and you're the technical person, well, they all kind of give each other these elevated founder titles, right? You have a CEO, CTO, CFO, CMO, CO, whatever, CCC, you, get, you got there. Sure. And it's kind of hard to see other people staying that and you just kind of ranking down into a VP role or even a head of role or, you know, a, a senior manager off or whatever. There was an interesting talk at MicroConf, the last one, uh, given by Rob Walling, and he was kind of talking about hiring for bootstrappers or hiring who to hire first, like the hiring progression. And it's uh, it's part of his book. Like he, he wrote the, the SaaS playbook, of which I have a copy right in front of me. I'm not going to, uh, I can show you because you could probably see it. It's like the, the newest thing that he wrote, which is kind of nice. It's, it's kind of a post product market fit um, playbook that he just got all of his um, tiny, tiny seed stuff into. And here's a section in there that was effectively the talk and that was hiring just hiring the, who to hire first and what kind of groups of founders, technical founder, uh, pr product person, or a designer and a coder, or just two people who have no technical skills, who they would hire first, kind of this, this kind of uh, progression. And one thing that he also said was, don't come up with weird and random titles in your, um, for, for the people that work for you. No coder ninjas, right? Give them the senior engineer or the, the junior engineer roles because just if you want to ever hire, it's much easier to hire a senior software engineer than whatever a coder ninja is, right? That's that's I'm basically... Sure doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people just, they think, ah, oh, this is kind of my business. I can do whatever I want. So oh, I give okay. myself the title of this. And in this Funny. escalation of titles, right? You, you get from like junior to senior to, to manager, to manager off, to, to to senior to lead and and then VP and then C level and wherever you position yourself in the beginning you're probably gonna hire people under you so you need to kind of rank up yourself but if you rank up too too high or you want to hire somebody who's supposed to be over you in in terms of skill level but you have uh -huh. to outrank them it becomes this whole game of weird org chart uh, whatever the Sudoku yeah. where you kind of have to mix and match yeah. and it, it that is something that that I 
am immediately reminded of when you asked me this, uh-huh. that becomes hard because you, you don't consider necessarily as a founder that you're not going to be in charge of the company at all times. So yeah. that, that, that shift alone to think that I might hire somebody not just to work for me, but to replace me or even give orders to me, even though I'm still the owner, that disconnect, that is something that I barely ever see because people just don't fathom that. It's just, is this mm-hmm. even a thing? Like you can own a part of the company, but not be the person making choices. That, that feels kind of, yeah. what do you think about this? Do you think this is reasonable to expect that somebody else makes choices, even though you have ownership of the company? I think that um, I think we, I want to encourage more founders to consider a pathway that doesn't involve constantly delegating everything to a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that playbook is potentially so. One of the things to to sort of consider is how easy is it to delegate the skills that you're bringing to the table, right? So how easy is it to hire someone who can do that part of the job as good or better than you? And, you know, the technical solo founder kind of situation is the classical one. Um, Generally, I think it might be good advice because probably, you know, you can hire someone who is legitimately, especially if they're giving it their full-time focus, a better software engineer than you, right? It's possible. Um, or the market exists, right? You can go out and with enough money, you can hire someone who can take on that role. I'm not sure that's at all true, for example, for my position, right? Which mm-hmm. is you know, investing in software companies. That's my individual contributor yeah. role. I think it'd be much easier to hire a really good CEO of a small, you know, sort of like 10-person company uh, than it is to um, or at least maybe like an operations person, right? Like a COO, um, then it would be to hire somebody who can invest in software companies better than me. I think, for example, you might be in a similar position or or other kind of like personality-driven media companies thinking about maybe like um, The Hustle or something mm-hmm. like that, right? Where like, it's actually pretty hard to hire somebody who's going to do what you do, Arvid, better than you. Like that, mm-hmm. that person is, first of all, like hard to find. And second of all, to the extent that they maybe even exist, they're not like in the job market for you to go and hire. <laughs> they have them. their own thing to do, right? <laughs> exactly. So I think yeah. we're going to see... A, a lot of companies kind of developing this um, role where the founder, the kind of individual contributor founder over time hires some very high-level folks to do at the kind of operations level, right? Maybe they're like a COO, maybe they're even called a CEO, but they kind of also retain the like chairman of the board yeah. position. Of course, it's like ridiculous, right? Because you might be like 15, 20 people. So, but like still, you have this like executive chairman sort of role, which is you're still the steward of the direction of the company, but there's somebody who is responsible for implementing that vision while you make your biggest contribution, which is this sort of individual contributor role. And I even think going back to some of our other conversations about the impact of like AI and how things like Copilot are making developers so much more talented, I think you might even see this reversal happening pretty frequently with a technical solo founder who might mm. also find that they still have the greatest contribution that they can to be spending most of their time writing code and shipping products. And they ultimately, at a certain point, hire their own COO to manage the company while they still spend the majority of their time 
you know, basically writing code, but at the same time, they don't necessarily work for that person, right? They're still the person setting the vision for the company um, while somebody, you know, collaborates with them on that and implements that for them. Um, I don't know. I thought it was interesting just because my own situation kind of caused me to question that. I, I now, by virtue of scaling back the size of the company, am just going to be spending a lot more time in my individual contributor role. And I'm actually excited about that because I think that is really where I make the largest contribution. Um, so I just have been thinking about that breakdown of kind of, you know, wearing two hats of individual contributor and kind of CEO and um, how that might be applicable to some other companies. So I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's an interesting time to question some of the accepted wisdom there and to give founders permission to explore other, other yeah. kind of configurations. There are, I think, a lot of traditional structures where both the decision-making process or the hierarchy of decision-making and the hierarchy of contributing are extremely aligned, extremely connected, right? Yeah. The, the more decision-making power you have, maybe inversely, the more direct contribution you have in the business. And that's just how the structure is. That's how an org chart is, right? If you're up there, you make the big choices and the little implementation things, they're done by the little people. <laughs> don't want to be insulting, but that's kind of how, to me, an org chart kind of is, is effectively done in terms of compensation and in terms of power and impact in the company. It would be nice to see this being disconnected, to be like, you can, you can own the company. You can maybe even lead the company in terms of the vision of the company not the the operational leadership like the actual you know implementation of of the vision but the 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 goal setting of the vision like the vision generation a generational part of that like how, how it gets generated that would be interesting and then you can still contribute wherever you are um if that was disconnected it's just i think the traditional structures of businesses as we know them is where, where this is very much predefined for you Right? The more inter individual contribution you want to do, either you have a really small company where you wear all the hats like a solopreneur or what you are currently doing in a smaller sure. kind of space, or in a bigger company, you have to choose between having impact or having power, you know, like in, in, in terms of the actual thing that you're building. This might be a bit of a, a simplification, obviously, but because it's just appearing in my mind as I speak about it, but yeah. it kind of feels like there's, there's this connection and it would be interesting to see if we can just like undo it and <laughs> just like be an individual contributor, particularly in the technical role. It feels hard in the technical role. I feel because as the business grows, so does the product, right? You have this kind of um, alignment there as well. Business gets bigger, product gets bigger, or at least gets more detailed, has more features, has more interconnectivity. You need to think more about scaling. You need to think more about architecture. With that comes more abstraction, which kind of fits the elevation of you go from senior engineer who still implements to a, a VP off who makes strategic choices and maybe combines a couple things that only they could see from their kind of bird's eye perspective to CTO who then does all the, the selling of the choices to the other departments, these interdepartmental things. That kind of feels like a software product just as it grows kind of necessitates that. But if you keep it like intentionally small, like if you keep your company like around 20, 30, maybe 40-ish people, still a lot of people, but you know, it's not that the world's biggest software company, you might be able to still do impactful underground work and still lead the company. Like that that seems to be I wonder honestly, we should just like look into the reality of software businesses and see if anybody actually does this. People actually yeah. want to do it. Or if they if they would rather kind of bite the bullet and take on these more abstract things, because otherwise the company's direction, the alignment between the vision and where it's actually going might be distorted. Because the only person that's I what's what I think about when I see you 
the only person who really understands where the comp fund is going is you because you are that right you you're it's your your brain child in in a sense that it's still kind of connected to your brain it needs to be because i think there's more examples than than people think i I think as i started thinking about it i started thinking of quite a few examples even in software you know i mean you have like jason and david from 37 signals who are still very active in design and programming in day-to-day sense uh i think i heard an interview recently with like darmesh from uh from hubspot who's basically Mm -hmm. sort of carved out this like technical no direct reports kind of role for himself where he's like the chief chief experimenter essentially just mm-hmm. like and and tries to find you know new exciting things that the company can do but but on his own um and i actually listened to an interview with toby from shopify recently and and he was talking about how much of a micromanager he is and and like and basically thought that the the negativity around that kind of concept was was misguided and how he like really rolls up his sleeve and gets in the weeds mm-hmm. on all kinds of of pretty small projects and stuff like that and mm-hmm. and then you think about like other examples right all kinds of firms like architecture firms and law firms and stuff like that the people who lead the organization are themselves still individually contributing you know legal work and architectural drawings and all that kind of stuff so i just felt like maybe the pendulum had swung a little bit too far in the common knowledge of um you know, how, what the person at the top of the company should be spending their time on. Um, you know, the idea of just like always be delegating everything, uh, isn't, you know, um, yeah, just always be delegating everything basically, uh, had maybe gone a little too far and folks should maybe consider some other, uh, avenues there. So anyway, a lot of cargo culting, right? That's the phrase for this kind of stuff where people just imitate behaviors by others. Yeah, I, and I think that there is a, a wave like the the, the Basecamp people writing about this. Like, it doesn't have to be crazy at work is a great example of this kind of approach, right? Where it just yeah. doesn't have to be crazy. Like, it doesn't have to be like oh, everybody else does their business and can still be a viable approach. And here's how we set it up. It's kind of what we're trying to do with the the Com MBA as well, like giving people an alternative framework to setting up something so it's not just hustle culture and a VC funded business internal org chart copy onto your five person business. <laughs> it would be nice not to not to have that. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's funny that the examples you mentioned kind of made me immediately think, hey, all you need to do is just to be a millionaire and you could do whatever you want in your business. But so <laughs> maybe that's not the perfect oh, perspective to take. Very fair point. Yeah, it, sometimes it, it's, it is difficult <laughs> to extrapolate from people who have already achieved like significant success that you got to really turn back the dials and see if they, you know, if that's something that they was part of their trajectory to success or something that once they got super successful, yeah. then they kind of unwound their their roles to, to that. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's I, good point. I would assume like the, the thing that comes to my mind here is when the business doesn't need you in the C-level pers- like position, when it's still running well, when you found a way to give somebody else the job that you don't want to do because it's not your level of where you want to be and the business is still successful, like then obviously you can do whatever you want in the business or outside of the business. That's been one of the things that I love about Built to Sell, the book by John Warlow, right? The idea that he says is remove yourself from the business so you're not needed anymore and you could do whatever. Either you keep running or you, you still work as the CEO because you kind of want to or you, you get into any position of the business. doesn't matter because the structure of the business is so stable and well-documented and highly automated and all the other things that are part of it that it doesn't matter if you are in there or not. Somebody could do the job. Might just as well be you because, you know, you get the benefit 
benefits from owning the business as well. So maybe mm. that's the trick. The trick is to build a good business. Hey, who had a, who had a thought? Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. Oh, but it does make sense, though. It, it's an interesting question. I, I never thought about this. So thank you for introducing this, this thought. It kind of also feels like this, in, in a way, is a mental health topic as well. Like, mm. do I want to be happy doing what I'm doing? Or do I want to do what I'm doing to get to my goal and kind of disregard what I feel joyful about what part of the business is the part that keeps me motivated keeps me like intrinsically want to go to work instead of feeling like i have to because now all of a sudden i have these employees that i need to support with my c-level things that i don't even like doing i want to hang out with these guys i want to build stuff right so yeah. it, it, and in a way everything boils down to to you being happy with your work so i'm, I'm glad that this is one more instance that actually probably has a gigantic impact on, on people's, uh, I think you're right. I mean, I'll, I'll, this is from a private conversation, so I won't cite who it was, but I was having the conversation recently with a founder about exactly what you just talked on, which is that I think, um, too quickly, let me think how to, how did we phrase this? So basically in the very beginning of a business's cycle, there is the, the fuel that it is running on is getting to financial viability, right? You have to get the business to sort of be financially sustainable, but pretty quickly after you reach some level of sustainability, right? Just enough revenue to kind of have enough of a team that you're not constantly running around, you know, like chicken with your head cut off, right? You know, you basically have the team in place that can run the business. Then the most important fuel is the founders just kind of excitement about the business. Yeah. And I think what happens is a lot of times we switch to that, to optimizing for that way, way, way too late, right? It's usually like, yes, you know, it's not the most fun in, you know, month nine when you're working really hard because you have to get this thing off the ground and you don't have enough money to pay for a customer support rep. So you're answering all the tickets yourself, but then you kind of get there and then for a long while, you keep optimizing for the financial sustainability and you realize at a certain point, oh crap, I don't really like this anymore. Yeah. And I think what actually the lesson is, is to learn to really switch that optimization much sooner. Like the second that you hit that sustainability to really start thinking about, okay, now the most important thing is that I love this and that's what's going to keep me focused and, and really crushing this business. And what changes do I need to make to really focus on that and make sure that that switch happens much, much, much sooner in the life cycle. So uh, I don't know, maybe uh, something for us to explore a little bit later on. But I, I like cool. that. Yeah, figuring out when to hire, <laughs> that that will be, uh, I think, a good topic for another discussion because that's been something that I've always struggled with. I've just yeah. only recently hired people to help me with my media empire, right? Doing certain yeah. things that I don't like doing. So I figured, well, instead of doing them and kind of begrudgingly doing them, why not pay somebody who actually enjoys this? So yeah. I've, I've been learning that about myself that I can let go, even though it's hard, but I can allow other people to do a good job. So that would be that would be a great discussion for a future episode. I would really like this because you probably have way more experience there. But I, I have a lot of a lot of insecurities that I can share with you. So that's no, going to be making make for a great conversation. First episode of uh, Founders Anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, why not? I mean, we should rename the podcast at this point. No, but I, I think that, that would be that organization. It probably exists like as a as a shadow organization where people aren't even aware that they're part of it, which is probably just Twitter, like the community that we're in. Yeah, that's <laughs> right it's just people that are outspoken are automatically part of it so there's a lot of us but 
I think um, it's really helpful to talk about these topics. So I'm really grateful that you even bring bring these things up. So thanks for bringing this to the conversation today. Yeah. I guess um, we, we should maybe kind of zip it up here. Um, yeah, this do, is great. Do you have any, do you have any shout outs this week? <laughs> I mean, I will say shout out. Well, I have an indirect shout out here, which is, um, you know, we let go of a bunch of great people. Um, so if you've looked at, uh, the comm fund and said, wow, these folks have amazing, you know, branding and, uh, voice and marketing and events and all that sort of stuff. And you thought all that stuff was fantastic. Um, reach out to me. Uh, I've got a couple of folks that, um, probably will need to be placed. Um, a couple of them are going to take a little bit of a, of a vacation. Um, so this is not an urgent, uh, request, <laughs> but, um, but that's my shout out is, uh, we've got a couple of great folks from the comp fund that, um, we'll be looking for their next thing. And, uh, if you like some of the stuff we've done, reach out to me and, and I'll, I'll connect you. Yeah. I second that the, the people at the comp fund are great yeah, people and they deserve the, the finest, finest future places to put their talents to good use. Awesome. So yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to leave it at that. That is a, that is a wonderful thing. Well, uh, Tyler, that was great. Um, yeah. I, I'm looking forward to catching up with you next week. Next again, week. hopefully yeah. at a better schedule than having a, a week off. But yeah, that, that was wonderful. Well, have a great week and I'll talk to you next week. See you, buddy.